A lot of songs today focusing on the cross and on the person of Jesus Christ and on his work on our behalf. And so if you would, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 18. We read from John 17, and now our text for the day will be in John chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. As we look today at the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Join with me as I read verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Let's pray. Father, how good it is to be together, how good it is to be into your, in your word this morning, to look at this great passage, to look at the voluntary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we pray that your Spirit now would be in our midst, wherever we are watching from, and that, Lord, you would take these words and bring them to life and apply them to our hearts and to our minds, and may you be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is great to be able to preach this morning. The last time that I was here in this sanctuary was Sunday, February 16th. I preached that morning, and then my wife and I left for Israel on February the 20th. And after getting back to Maryland on March the 5th, we have been at home every Sunday since. Uh, The last time I preached here, there were about 400 people in this sanctuary. Today, there are about four. And I'm trying not to take that personally. It was an incredible experience to to go to the Holy Land, uh, to see uh, so many of the places described for us in the Old and the New Testament, to be where Jesus preached and taught, and to visit some of those places where Jesus was during his final week on the earth. This morning, we are dropping into a text that is near the end of his final week or his Passion Week, late Thursday night into early Friday morning. 
When you examine the final week of Jesus and the four gospel accounts, you see that Jesus is in complete control of his destiny. His betrayal, arrest, trials, and crucifixion are coming, but not a minute sooner than what has been ordained from the Father, by the Father, from eternity past. Jesus is in absolute control. From the cursing of the fig tree to the upper room arrangements that he made and the disciples find this man carrying a pitcher of water and into the garden of Gethsemane. We believe that in eternity past, before creation, there was a decision made among the Trinity that one day Jesus Christ would come to earth in the fullness of time, as Paul describes in the book of Galatians, and that he would be born of a virgin, that he would put on flesh, that he would grow in wisdom and stature, that he would obey the law of God perfectly and live his life without sin, and then go to a cruel cross and lay down his life for sinners, and take on our sin, and face the full fury of God's almighty wrath, so that we could be forgiven of our sin and become his righteousness. Well, that time has now come, and Jesus is in control of the details that will lead to his arrest and his imminent crucifixion. The time has now come, Today, we are here in the Gospel of John, where the Apostle John writes in order to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the purpose for the writing of his Gospel. He writes that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so today, I want to show you five attributes of Jesus that proves that he is indeed the Son of God. Five attributes of Jesus that prove that he is indeed the Son of God. And first of all, we see the supreme courage of the Son of God. The supreme courage of the Son of God. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This first phrase, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is a reference to the passage that I read earlier this morning, John chapter 17. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is the Lord's Prayer. We often call what we find in Matthew 6 the Lord's Prayer. That would be better titled the Disciples' Prayer. What we have in John 17 is the Lord interceding before he goes to the cross. And so we read that when he had spoken these words, he went forth. The time had come. It is time for Christ to go to the cross, and that is why he has come to earth, to lay down his life for sinners, to lay down his life in obedience to the Father. If you remember back in John chapter 2, Jesus is in Cana of Galilee. He is at a wedding, and they run out of wine. And Mary comes to Jesus and lets him know about this embarrassing problem. And he says to her, woman, what does that have to do with me 
my time has not yet come. That would have been over three years ago, but now the time has come. It is early on Friday morning and he will die later in the day. It is time for him to go to allow himself to be tried and crucified on a cross at Calvary. And so we read in verse one that he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples are now east of the temple. The Kidron Valley is first mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23. It's another scene of betrayal as David was fleeing from Jerusalem after Absalom's rebellion. David had fled there in fear, but Jesus, the Son of God, comes to this place with great courage. Across this familiar valley was the western slope of the Mount of Olives, or Mount Olivet, where there was a garden. John does not name the place here in his gospel, but both Matthew and Mark in their gospels call this garden Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means oil press, suggesting that this was an olive orchard. Look at verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. It was back in John chapter 13 that we see Judas departing from Jesus and the disciples to go and betray Jesus. Betraying can also be translated handling here. And we read that Judas knew the place. Luke 21, 37 says, Now, during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. Luke twenty two thirty nine, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. I want you to observe here the supreme courage of Jesus. He is not in hiding. He is going to a place that he often went with his disciples. Jesus is wanting to be found. Jesus is wanting to be taken. We can hear the words of Jesus in John 10 at this place in verses 17 and 18, where Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Verse three, Judas then having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. A Roman cohort at full strength numbered from 600 to 1,000 men. It is unlikely, though, that the entire cohort or company that was stationed in Jerusalem for the Passover would have been sent to arrest Jesus. There was a similar detachment of men known as a manipole, which consisted of about 200 men, and that is probably what is in view here. But we do know that this group included the commanding officer. Verse 12, we read that, the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. For the Romans to send a large attachment of troops to deal with one potential, potentially troublesome individual was not unusual. 
In Acts chapter 23, we see 470 soldiers take the Apostle Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Like the Jewish authorities, the Romans feared that the arrest of Jesus would lead to a riot. And so these legionnaires were there to serve as backup for those who were making the arrest, the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. It is these men who actually arrest Jesus for he is first taken to the Jewish authorities and not immediately to Pontius Pilate. Luke tells us in his gospel that there were also some chief priests among this group, most likely there to to supervise the temple police. And Judas, of course, is with them out in front, leading them to Jesus. They came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. They brought lanterns and torches to light the way to Gethsemane. But as one Bible, as one Bible commentator points out that since it was Passover, which was celebrated when there was a full moon, there would have been ample light. And so he argues that they anticipated that Jesus might flee and the lanterns and torches would give them light to search for him on the mountainside. They come with weapons as well, expecting resistance from these 11 ordinary men and from the God-man, Jesus Christ. You know, if there would have been email at this time or cell phones, I believe Jesus would have told these men exactly where to find him. He would have given away his location. He would have told them to leave the lanterns and the torches at home. He would have told them that it was unnecessary for them to bring weapons. He was not a flight risk. His time had now come. And so we read in verse four, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. Friends, this is remarkable courage. I get nervous or even scared when I have to go to the dentist or if I'm about to get a shot or I have to get some blood taken out of my arm. Jesus was about to die a cruel death by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. He knew what was involved physically. He knew what awaited him at his scourging. He also knew that he was about to become the sin of the world and that the father would turn his back upon him and that he would be forsaken and that he would feel the the full fury of the wrath of Almighty God. Yet he displayed incredible courage, a courage unknown to mortal man, a courage that could only be displayed by the Son of God, by God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The second attribute that we see here that proves that Jesus is the Son of God is the sovereign knowledge of the Son of God. The sovereign knowledge of the Son of God. I read a portion of that here in verse four, just the beginning of the verse. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. This is just a, a short phrase here in the Gospel of John, but I don't want to gloss over it. Time and time again throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus knowing all things knowing the thoughts and the motives of men, knowing why people were doing what they were doing and knowing who it was who was going to betray him. Jesus here knows all the things that were coming upon him. In John 17, one, in that prayer, Jesus 
spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Here we see the omniscience of Jesus, that Jesus was a man, but he was also God. And we see him knowing all things. In John chapter two, verses 23 to 25, we read that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In Matthew chapter nine, verses two to four, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? In John 13, verses 10 to 11, Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus had sovereign knowledge because he was God in the flesh, God incarnate. He knew why he had come to earth. He knew why he was to give his life for sinners. And he knows that the time has now come. Thirdly, the third attribute that we see here is the stunning power of the Son of God. The stunning power of the Son of God. Look at verses four through six. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When you read the last part of verse four here, you may be tempted to doubt what I just told you about the sovereign knowledge of Jesus. As he asks this company of Roman soldiers, whom do you seek? But Jesus is not ignorant. He knows exactly who they are after. They are after him. In verse five, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. John points out here that Judas was with them and what Judas, excuse me, what Jesus will say to them in response was two words that Judas had heard Jesus speak at least 10 times before, at least recorded in scripture. Here at the end of verse five, he said to them, I am he. If you look carefully there in your Bibles, most of you, many of you at least, have the word he in italics here, and that is because the word he is not found in the Greek text. But the translators have put it here for our benefit so that we can understand. But Jesus simply said to these men two words, ego, ami, I am. Jesus has said these two words before, and John records these times in his gospel. In chapter 8, verses 23 to 24, he was saying to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins 
For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 8, 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the father taught me. The word he is not found in either of these verses in the Greek. Jesus was claiming for himself the name of God from Exodus 3.14. The Lord who speaks with Moses and tells him to tell the people, tell them the I am has sent me to you. The people knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said these words, I am. In fact, in John 8, later in that chapter, verses 58 and 59, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so here in John 18, Jesus says this again. This is nothing new. Judas has heard this before. The disciples have heard this before. It is possible that some of the chief priests who are present in this company of men have heard Jesus say this before as well. But it carries a different reaction from the other times that Jesus said these words. Look at verse six again. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Friends, this is absolutely amazing. This is absolutely stunning. All Jesus had to do here was speak his name in response to their answer of his question. Whom do you seek? As he identifies himself to them. And these seasoned, trained, and armed men are rendered powerless. This amazing demonstration of the power of Christ clearly reveals that they did not seize Jesus, but that he gave himself up and went with them willingly and voluntarily to go and carry out the divine plan of redemption that was ordained by the Trinity in eternity past. Those who do not believe the Bible, those who are skeptics, they claim that this never happened. Some of those who do believe the Bible even try to remove any work of the supernatural here. There are some that argue that Jesus' sudden appearance out of the shadows startled those in front of the column, that they lurched backward and knocked the ones behind them down, who in turn knocked others down until the whole column went down. But the temple police and the Roman soldiers were prepared for trouble. These are seasoned men. Jesus says to them in Matthew 26, verse 55, have you come out with swords and clubs? to arrest me as you would against a robber? They are expecting resistance and perhaps a physical encounter with Jesus and the disciples. They would surely have been spread out, both to defend themselves against an attack by Jesus' followers and to cut off any escape attempt on his part. The notion that hundreds of experienced police officers and highly trained soldiers would stand so close together in one line that they would be toppled over like dominoes is simply ludicrous. Friends, this is a highlight of the stunning power of Jesus who could simply speak, who could simply say his name and cause up to perhaps 200 men to fall to the ground. It's interesting to point out here that 
Judas had heard Jesus say these words before, again, at least 10 different times as recorded in the Gospel of John, most likely many, many more. But when Jesus said to this Roman cohort, I am, Judas fell down too. These men were in the presence of God himself, the I am, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will always be. His glory consumed them. His glory knocked them down. So do not underestimate the power of Jesus Christ. We should not struggle to see the supernatural here. After all, it is Jesus who spoke the world into existence. It is Jesus who spoke to the wind and the waves and they became completely calm. It was Jesus who spoke to the demons and they would be driven out of men. This is the power of Christ, the son of the living God. The fourth attribute that we see here that proves that Jesus is God is the sacrificial love of the son of God, the sacrificial love of the son of God. Look at verses seven through nine. Therefore, again, he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Just as Jesus was not ignorant about who this Roman cohort was there to arrest, he is also not hard of hearing. There is a reason that he repeats the question here in verse seven, this question, whom do you seek? I want you to just picture this scene if you can, these seasoned men, these, seasoned men, these armed soldiers picking themselves off of the ground, dusting themselves off, and they have Jesus repeat the question, and they're like, uh, Jesus the Nazarene? Jesus reminds them that he is that person in case they were a little confused after falling to the ground and again says to them, ego, me, I am. But then he gives them a command. Look at this in verse eight. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Friends, this is amazing. It is Intentional, intentional, it is sacrificial. By making his captors twice state that their orders were only to arrest him, Jesus forces them to acknowledge that they had no authority from their superiors to arrest these disciples. Jesus did not say this to them, but he could have said, and if you're not willing to abide, you will fall right back on the ground. The awesome display of his power that each of these men had just experienced was more than enough motivation for them to arrest Jesus alone. Even after Peter tries to cut off the head of the slave of the high priest, they let all of them go. These men did not know that this submission to Christ's request was actually a fulfillment of scripture as we read in verse nine, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. In John chapter six, verses 37 to 40, Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And John 17, 12, which we read earlier this morning, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Here we see Jesus acting as the good shepherd. He understood the trauma involved with being arrested and imprisoned and even being executed. He knew his disciples were frail. They were weak. He knew that something like this could shatter their faith. And so he makes sure that they are protected. They are, free, they are fearful. They will soon flee but they are protected by the Son. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. You belong to him forever. He has given you to the Son. You are a gift to Christ. And Christ does not re-gift. He does not return his gifts. We are secure in Christ. We have been given eternal life and we will never perish. We will never be snatched out of his hand. We can't even jump out. We belong to him forever. Praise God. The fifth attribute that proves that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is the submissive obedience of the Son of God. The submissive obedience of the Son of God. Look at verses 10 to 11. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? D.A. Carson in his commentary on the gospel of John points out that this may have been not much more than a dagger. Peter was obviously going for Malchus's head, but Peter was a fisherman, not a soldier. And this blow to the ear was as clumsy as his courage was great. As Peter was ready to start the battle in defense of his Lord and Savior. This event is recorded in all four Gospels, but only John tells us the name of the slave. His name was Malchus. John is also the only Gospel writer that tells us that it was Peter who cut off his ear. Matthew would have observed this too, but does not reveal to his readers that it was Simon Peter, but John does. John will also point out that it was Peter that he outran to the tomb after Jesus was raised from the dead. I love the little rivalry between John and Peter, perhaps, these two fishermen. Luke, the physician, in his gospel, is the only gospel writer to tell us that Jesus restored Malchus's ear. The other soldiers would have observed Jesus doing this which was yet another proof that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Yet they still arrested him, for this was the Father's will for the Son, and nothing, absolutely nothing, can derail 
the sovereign plans of Almighty God. Not even Peter. We admire his courage and his love for the Lord, but that courage is useless, and this bravery is a denial of the work to which Jesus has just consecrated himself. And so Jesus says to Peter in verse 11, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus' commitment to drink the cup prepared for him by his Father calls to mind his prayer in Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, verse 39, we read that Jesus went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Again, in 26, 42, he went away and again a second time prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. There was no other way. There was no plan B. This was the will of God for the Son. We read in Scripture that it pleased the Father to crush him. Christ would die for God and God would be satisfied with the death of his Son, Jesus. Jesus submitted his will to the Father. He allowed himself to be taken. He placed himself on the cross. His death was voluntary. His death was vicarious. It was in my place and it was in your place. His death was substitutionary. It was for my sins and for your sins. And his death was victorious. Victorious over the power of sin and death. We celebrate that death today as we gather. And not only his death, but also his resurrection from the dead. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we are amazed. We are in awe of your voluntary sacrifice in our place. Lord, as we examine this passage here in John 18, and we see the willingness of Jesus to go to the cross, Lord, we're in disbelief. We are humbled. We are amazed and we are eternally grateful. Lord, thank you for your obedience to the Father. Lord, you could have called 10,000 angels or 72,000 angels, but Lord, you submitted. You understood this, this was the only way to save humanity, to reconcile sinful men to a holy God. And so we praise you this day for your obedience, for your sacrifice for our sins, for your substitutionary death in our place. Lord, I pray if there's anyone today that is listening that has never trusted in you as Savior and Lord, that Lord, today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, you tell us that tomorrow is not guaranteed to us. Today is the day of salvation. So Lord, I pray you would work in the hearts of those who do not know you, that, Lord, you might be kind as you have been kind to us, that you would grant them repentance from their sin, that you would give them faith to believe in your Son, that they might be forgiven and have everlasting life. Lord, may we always be amazed by your grace, your marvelous, matchless grace. We thank you for it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.